0: Welcome to Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. I'm your host, Tom Masters, and our guest today is Dr. Doug Garland. He's a clinical professor at the University of Southern California and the former director of the Spinal Cord and Traumatic Brain Injury Units of a world-renowned Rehabilitation Center. He's also the author of The Tall Poppy Syndrome, a modern guide to an ancient metaphor. Welcome.
1: Thanks, Tom. I'm excited to welcome today's guest. <clears throat> we go back since to, uh, 1983, where uh, Dr. Garland um, was my chief of the service when I was a second year orthopedic resident at the University of Hawaii. We had to rotate um, at Rancho Los Amigas Rehab Hospital in Los Angeles. And um, Doug is a practice um, medicine, orthopedic surgeon. Um, He spent time on the rehab service at Rancho. And after I left, he ended up being the chief of four services in charge of 160 beds. He's published over 110 peer-reviewed scientific articles, many of them extremely well-read. He's one of the pioneers in what's called heterotopic ossification, which is the formation of bone around injured joints and head trauma. He also is an expert in uh, spinal cord injury. And he has just done a lot of contributions. So we ran across each other, what, maybe a month
2: ago, Doug? Yes. I just sent you, I saw your name on Doximity, one of the doctor blogs, and I just thought I'd say hello. And it's amazing how uh, similar we are uh, and different from our orthopedic roots. Right. Right. Well, what's interesting is that he and I have had
1: some experiences where we go our own personal routes um, and we sort of found out there's not as much reward for being creative as innovative as, innovative as
2: one might think, right? Doug, is that a fair statement? <laughs> it's hard to be creative when you're making a living and you're in a job. Right. So you, 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 have, you have to conform and uh, to your professional standards, hospital standards, uh, your own beliefs and stuff. So it's very hard to to have the freedom to think and express.
1: So that being said, uh, I wrote this paper with Doug and he took it a lot farther on heterotopic classification. And there's a classification that he worked on and developed. And then this tall poppy syndrome came out of the blue. He's published a book on Kindle soon to be in print called The Tall Poppy Syndrome. Modern Guide to an Ancient Metaphor. And I had never heard of the term, even though when you hear about the book, you'll well, you'll recognize exactly what's going on. And so I'd like to, first of all, work backwards a little bit, Doug, and just define the tall poppy syndrome. And then then give me some background on how you became more and more aware of it. Because it's really fascinating because what you did, which I, that doesn't surprise me at all is that he's a clinical researcher. He's extremely meticulous. And when I write, I tend to be more concept oriented and the details are sort of more conceptual. And what's really impressive about this book, he just goes into story after story after story of the details of the tall poppy syndrome. But it's like reading in a really incredibly abridged history book. It's extremely interesting, learning all sorts of things about people that are famous, the backgrounds, what's really going on. I was really interested in Dwight Eisenhower, by the way, that was fascinating because he sort of held up as a different, sort of one of the better presidents and some of the things he pulled off were not so great. So, I mean, it's just fascinating the different people we go into the details of who they really are um, and your research is is unbelievable. I mean, I'm just blown away. So yeah, I'm just curious, how did you, can, um, can you define the tall poppy syndrome for us?
2: So the, the simple metaphor is looking at a a poppy field and seeing one poppy taller than the rest or a few taller than the rest. In order to keep uniformity, the tall poppies get cut down so that when you look at a field, everything looks the same. And that's the simple thing. And of course, The more I delved into it, it was quite complex so that you could, so that this simple concept could be conformed and bent into any society. So there, as far as I can tell, it's in every society, but the cutter, the person who cuts the taller person down, the motives may be different in each society and the activity of the tall poppy may be a little different and not conform to a specific society. So the concept is simple to understand and see, but there's a big variance in the emotions that are involved in in the uh, cutters and in the behaviors of the people that are cut down. So that was the simple, that's the simple concept the, um, the reason I did so much research and storytelling is I wanted to make certain that it was worldwide and that everybody was involved in it. It wasn't just a few people, which is what you might think when you just see the poppy field and the simple uh, metaphor. So it became more and more complex and the book became larger and larger. Um, but that's That's the simple thing. And then I have uh, the cases that you have to remember. And if you remember those, you can build on them. So in essence, the tall poppy syndrome for the most part is defined by bad envy. So envy is divided into good envy and bad envy envy is the most prevalent of all the emotions because it's always on. Why do I say that? Because I'm looking at you and I'm evaluating you. And I'm looking at my neighbor, I'm evaluating my neighbor. It's all subconscious. The good envy is actually emulation. So the way envy should work is that I see my neighbor, he has a Porsche or something that's really nice, And I become envious of that. The good envy would be, well, I'll save a little bit, I'll work a little harder, I'll do something very positive so that I can buy a car equal to him. Bad envy would be, I can't do those things in order to buy it, so I'm going to destroy his happiness. So, bad envy would be, I'm going to key his car, I'll punch his tire, I'll do something to try and destroy his happiness. So, in the Main case report would be somebody with low self-esteem can't get what the other person has, so they try to cut that person down. That's what I call peer-to-peer, meaning what happens to society, but we don't hear about that. That happens in your neighborhood, in your family, in your workplace, in the school. That goes completely unto undetected in society, and we have no idea the prevalence of it. Now, what people know about is what I call public, and that is the public figures that get cut down. So Harvey Weinstein is gonna be an example of that. He was a true tall poppy at one time. He was a very successful producer in Hollywood, but he did some egregious activity And because of that, the public cutting down. So those are the two types you think of, kind of the low self-esteem person uh, who wants to cut somebody down and the egregious activity of the tall poppy. And if you kind of remember that classic, those two classic examples, um, then you can build on that And then you, all the other so-called dark emotions will be involved in somebody, somebody with anger, uh, somebody with fear, so that those emotions are motivators to cut somebody down as well. But the classic case is the bad envy person with low self-esteem or the egregious tall poppy.
1: Well, with Harvey Weinstein, let's stop there for a second, because I mean, obviously he did some really bad things. And so, you know, you can argue he deserved to be cut down, et cetera, et cetera, except the part that's unsaid, which is really dark, is that people sort of rejoice that he got cut down. That's called schadenfreude. Am I pronouncing that word correctly?
2: Schadenfreude. schadenfreude. What is it? Schadenfreude.
1: Schadenfreude? Yeah. Can you find that word for us? because I ran across that about a year ago when I was writing one of my blog posts, and it's called The Envy of Others Devours Us All, and somehow I had never really understood this, is that you actually delight in other people's failures, correct? That's the basic essence correct.
2: of that word? That's, yes, that's a German word. Uh, Germans have an interesting way of building vocabulary. So they can start with a single word and then put two words together, which schadenfreude is. It's harm and evil, so or pain, and so you have joy from somebody else's pain. So they can actually put another word on and have free words and bring another meaning into it. But schadenfreude is also driven by envy. It lights up the same spot that happens when somebody's cut down and it frequently follows the tall poppy syndrome. And the easiest example and a relatively benign example, which everybody can relate to, is you're driving down the 405, which most people know that freeway in LA, it's one of the busiest roads in the world. Everybody's trying to get on work in time. And there's usually a jerk that drive, is weaving through the crowd and making everybody put on their brake lights. And of course, your reaction is anger. And we can go into that emotion if we have time sometime, but that's also an interesting reaction to his behavior. But Anyway, good anger, you just let it go, concentrate more so you don't have a wreck. And he drives on down. And then a mile or two down the road, there he is pulled over on the side. Now, if he has a fender bender, you're going to be delighted because he probably had an expensive car. Or he's getting a ticket from a patrol person. And that is the way to come to work with a happy face (laughs) because you're so happy that guy got caught. So right. that is that is a benign, useful schadenfreude.
1: So, yeah. And
2: the, let me, before I move on from that, the movie industry, nobody knows that term. It's kind of hard to spell and pronounce and remember. But think about the movie industry, especially our early cowboy movies where everybody knew who the good guy was and he captured the bad guy.
1: Right. So John
2: Wayne had the white hat on, the bad guy had the black hat, hat on, and John Wayne always caught the guy that was doing evil, and the audience uniformly left the movie theater happy. So right. Hollywood has been very uh, not aware of the emotional experience, maybe not the proper term for it.
1: No, that's really interesting. You're right. I mean, even now, of course, that's happens all the time. You want the hero to win. You want the bad guy to be punished, and there's, there's some justice that happens in your brain that sort of resonates with that pretty deeply. And you know, and the thing, what <laughs> I'm gonna go a little bit deep here, which is probably beyond this conversation, but we can see the person get caught that was pulled over on the side of the freeway. You know, maybe his daughter is in the ER. You know you don't really know what's going on with that person. So what happens with that exact reaction, which is understandable and pretty universal, I don't know I would have the same reaction, but so you don't really know what's going on with that person's life, the reason why the person did that. So what happens when you when you put that label on somebody, you've now blocked awareness and you've blocked compassion, right? That's true, right? so, and so
2: it becomes the- ingrained. You see, you see You see a lot of bad behavior on the freeway, there's no doubt about it, but sometimes the weaving is legitimate, but because of your, the response that comes into your, what I call your internal madness, uh, which is the cognitive bias that from that point, after you see that activity a few times or you may see uh, some particular person, as I mentioned, my already bias is somebody with a fancy car fast car that likes to speed uh, you develop that bias but now and then there are people that need to be in that mode right. but they get cut down too that's that was that's also part of the metaphor so one of the metaphor, one of the my study points became when I see uh, the tall poppy syndrome occur uh, I try and put the puzzle back together and see who Was the cutter, the cutty, and the victim. Because just seeing a tall poppy field and a tall poppy and somebody gets cut down, that doesn't mean that person deserved to be cut down. Right. So it may be, he may be the enemy or the cutter may be the enemy. Right.
1: No, I think what you are hit upon is extraordinarily important because, you know, my project is about chronic pain. And when you're angry and agitated and anxious, your body's inflammatory markers goes up, your metabolism increases, and you don't feel good. So this idea of Schadenfreude is interesting because, you know, it it maybe I I looked this up one day because I was writing this article on the envy of others devours us all. And I wrote another article called The Myth of Self-Esteem. The Self-esteem is a judgment pattern and probably the worst myth propagated on the human experience because every second you're judging yourself as better than or worse than. And it gives you benefit to actually put somebody down, but also gives the other person benefit to put you down. So here you are in first grade trying to figure out who you are and you're trying to look for approval from other people, but they get their approval from putting you down. It's, a, it's an incredibly bad situation. And I think that plays out through the rest of life, but it really causes causes tremendous societal disruption. So um, I like to go to the medical school situation for a second, of which you know extremely well, which you know extremely well, is that let's look at competition to get into medical school, right? So we're looking for grades and we and so. <laughs> Actually, I'm going to ask the audience to do something. I want each one of you, because this is universal stuff. It's there. And when it's unconscious, it actually can be much more destructive than than when you're aware of it. So when you're aware of what's going on, you have a chance of solving it. So my, again, I'm learning as I go here with you, but I would say that it's universal. We compete for resources. We compete for self-esteem. So it's universal that we're always judging other people as better than or worse than. Is that a fair statement, Doug?
2: Well, we do, um, we're judging, but I like to use envy um, a little bit more than you to, because we're always comparing. So, first you have to compare, then you have to make the judgment. So, I, as I mentioned, I like to say envy is always on because it's a comparison uh, emotion. So, first of all, you have to compare yourself. And then you have to make a judgment, I think. So that's how how I look at people. And, and I went to, I grew up in a small town in Iowa, and I had a very good background, meaning um, good family with good parents. And my father was always about character building. And I did go to Catholic schools, which private parochial schools, which were all about character building. And I think the good envy was built into me, which I didn't really understand at that time until I actually wrote the book. But it's this comparing, I would had the ability to compare and learn from smart people. And so I wanted to be like they were. So in high school, I befriended all the smart people. I got good grades in college. I befriended the smart people. I got good grades in med school. I befriended the smart people. I actually lived with my sophomore year with two of the top five best students in our medical school class. So that will go through residency in your office and getting patients and things. So I actually was fortunate that I had good envy, but I had no insight into my understanding of my activities until I wrote the book and understood the emotion of envy so that's um, how important I consider that emotion but yes then then you judge your judgment comes in of other people and yourself and it's hard to sometimes know which comes first the chicken or the egg or how low low self-esteem happens I mean it's it's also very complex you have bullying come in from other people, even if you're sort of okay, the bullier thinks you're not okay. So he can help you lose your self-esteem. So um, you auger in when that happens and then you start cutting people down.
1: So I will um, hit the other side of the coin here. So I'm embarrassed to say this, and this is what I'm sort of thinking on the run here, but I'm embarrassed to say when I was in high school and college that I had bad envy. In other words, I came from a really abusive background. I did not have a good family. And so my whole life was based on gaining self-esteem, except I didn't know it. All I know is I I just wanted to achieve, achieve, achieve. And if I looked at the group of people who were partying on drugs or whatever, I just said, well, they're not my competition. So in other words, up my odds of succeeding, more people that didn't do well, the higher the odds of me succeeding. But I think when you come from a bad background, that society really sets us up to do this. And I think medical school is particularly perverse because you're in high school. You want to get to a good college. You get to college and you're competing, competing. Of course, people go to different careers, which is fine. I mean, it's sort of a neutral feeling. Or again, they get hooked on some addiction or they start parting themselves out or they just burn out. Why this competition That's less competition. But medical school gets to be pretty brutal because everybody gets there that's the top of the class. And then residency is even worse because you have, I don't know if they, do they still do the pyramid system in different residencies or is that gone by the wayside?
2: I think it's gone by the wayside, but I also went through a pyramid in our residency at Charity Hospital, Tulane. Um, It's a terrible place for competition.
1: Can can you explain the pyramid system, which is going to be the most perverse way to bring this characteristic, characteristic of schadenfreude out into the open? I mean, it's
2: horrible. Well, at that university, it's kind of like redshirting and college football and things. They kind of cheat the system and somebody may be, if your residency's is uh, four years or maybe somebody taking a fifth year so they can stay on top and run, sort of run the residence, so to speak, as if they're a faculty member. So as you start out... Um, there's eight people in our program, which is a large program, and the by default, the good students uh, got the good rotations. Well, the good, stu- the better rotations generally made you a better resident. So by your senior year, you had, you may were lucky enough to get the best rotations, but you ended up knowing a little bit in your fellow. Residents, so you became the chief of your fellow residents. Here you are now a tall poppy. So, all not all your fellow residents are envious, but there is a, a bad envy towards many of the tall poppy residents who are running the program, right? And they'll do subtle things to cut you down, such as not take care of your patients. Uh, very well when you're on call when you come in and you have an infection so they they, they don't even understand their behavior but um, that's the way it happens I happen to be I had been in Vietnam in a mash hospital untrained and acted as a surgeon and when I started my residency I was very I, was, I did two years of orthopedics in the military, so when I became a first-year medical or surgical resident, I knew a lot more than most of the people in the residency, so I was held, essentially what I call held back at Charity, which was a busy hospital and ran the rest of the freshmen. They held me back my uh, first six months of my second year to help this residents, and I spent my whole senior year. So in my residency, I was two and a half years at Charity Hospital. Well, that's mostly a trauma hospital and there's a lot more to orthopedics than trauma. Right. But that, that made me the chief resident and kind of a tall poppy and certain envy uh, from my compatriots. And there was a lot of subtleties of them trying to cut me down. But I was so... So young and inexperienced about emotions, I didn't realize any of it until I wrote the book. And the same with you. I I was surprised at your your story because when we were together, I hardly work with any residents that can write papers. And you and I wrote a paper, and that paper was published in Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery, which is the prestigious journal in orthopedics. And to think that a resident would write, be able to help write a paper like that in their second year. I had nothing but adulation for you. And little did I know about your emotional turmoil. I thought you were the absolute best.
1: Well, it's sort of funny when you're at that phase working so fast, you don't even, you don't know what's driving you exactly. And so in an odd way, it probably was. It wasn't until my past cut off with me about 15 years later, that things started to fall apart pretty badly. And I, I remember, so um, that we're out of time for this podcast. I, I mean, we'll probably have several more of these coming coming forward because this thing is really fascinating and we're barely touching the surface. But again, I want the audience to just consider because we're going to, you'll hear Dr. Garland's second podcast next week. But um, is it critical to be aware of your, positives, but it's also really critically aware and actually in some ways more aware of your dark side, because it's only by embracing every part of who you are, do you actually get to move forward in a powerful way. So be honest with yourself and even talking, you talk about my thoughts in college about somebody else field that didn't do well, that was less competition for me. That doesn't feel very good. It doesn't make me sound like a very good person, but it's reality. When that person gets pulled over on the side of the road, you know, you have that deep, Feeling, you yeah, have deserved it. And you're really right about the movie industry, which I think is really fascinating is that you want the bad, we all, we really want the underdog to win. We want the bad guys to lose. We want the good guys to win. Um, but there's a certain point where the good guys are too good and they have to come down too. So it's, the whole process is incredibly fascinating. So um, Doug Garland has written a book. It's called The Tall Poppy Syndrome. It's on Kindle. It's a fascinating history book. It's just really an excellent history book. So it's very entertaining just from pure history. And what I like about it is so concise. I mean, I can actually, I'm not a huge history person. I don't go into a lot of details, but I learned so many things about so many people so quickly. I, I really like the book. And then you have a website too, Doug, it's uh, DougGarland.com. Right. Okay. So yeah, it's a fascinating book. You'll enjoy this. And it's just calling out a lot of questions Because it goes into so much detail with people's individual things. You go, well, wait a second. Am I like that? Did I just do that? And so it's really a fascinating book. So I'm impressed with the research. I'm impressed with the breadth of knowledge. And it's really, I think, an significant contribution to just human behavior. So hey, Doug, thank you for for being on.
2: Well, thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. And I enjoyed seeing you again and talking to you. Yeah, likewise.
0: I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Doug Garland, for being on the show today and for explaining the tall poppy syndrome and what it means for our personal relationships as well as for our society as a whole. I'm your host, Tom Masters, reminding you to be back next week for another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. And in the meantime, be sure to visit the website at www.thedocjourney.com.